I think it'll, for starters, it'll be immensely richer if we take the opportunity. Otherwise, we'll impoverish ourselves by restricting our, our field of activity to planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're butting up against the limits of industrial activity on Earth, whereas in space, there's a hell of a lot more room. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project. I'm excited. It is late my time and, I don't know, fairly early his time. I have Adam Crowell here, the blogger at crowellspace.com. Lots of math on your site, Adam. I was just looking at that again, checking uh, my way through it. So anybody who goes to crowellspace.com had better be prepared (laughs) to do some some thinking and some study. I want to keep it light today, though, uh, not do too much math. Uh, but I, I do want people to know that Adam here has some serious space chops. I've wanted to have him on as a guest for a long time. And I've wanted to talk about space and take this podcast in a slightly different direction about futurist ideas and where I think we should go. Because I personally am, am very invested in the space field and, uh, and I want to have large businesses in that field. So, okay. uh, thanks for being here. Let's begin with this, Adam. Why do you think space exploration is important? I mean, you get a lot of people who say, well, wait a minute, we should be spending these funds on uh, helping the less fortunate or homeless or something like that. What about space exploration makes it more important than some potentially more pressing terrestrial priority? Well, I, I always find it interesting that people think of space as somehow a a big social project, whereas they don't think anything of building massive sporting stadiums or, you know, the entertainment industry, which uh, some of the budgets for recent movies exceeds the budgets for various space probes to different parts of the solar system. Uh, So it's funny how that comparison always comes up. It's like, is space really a luxury? I mean, we have Mm. so many technological developments that, have fed into industry and society thanks to uh, space technology, um, which might never have existed because most of the big social help programs generally have an idea of what they want to do from the start. They're not about innovation or development. Uh, They're really about applying what we already know. Uh, So really, yeah, it's, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. It's Mm. like, the social change or social improvement that comes afterwards, but space comes before that. It's research, it's mm-hmm. expanding horizons, it's developing new economies, new technologies, new ways of doing things. And that's why it's important. Right. There, there is going uh, to be an enormous economy that doesn't exist right now for things made in space and, and uh, yeah, exactly. real estate in space. If I were able to put up a bunch yeah. of, uh, lab spaces in in orbit, man, I would create a whole new economy right away. Uh, and you think about, say, a new heat shield tile being well, possibly right. Mm-hmm. Take that and run with it. Where do you want to go with it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the so many. Well, there's so many extreme conditions in space mm-hmm. um, that are encountered like routinely. So the so developing the materials for that then feeds back into applications on earth in ways right. that we never expected. Like right. the whole point is that it's a stretch goal. It, it pushes mm. the boundaries. And if we don't push the boundaries, we never advance. Right. Uh, which, yeah. So it always seems to me like 
you know, there are so many other things that really are luxuries that we could do without in a pinch. Uh, you know, people in wartime did without them. And no one goes, oh, why don't we stop smoking? Why don't we stop drinking? Why don't we stop buying marijuana? You know, it's like people want their luxuries. And they go, ah, space is just another luxury. It's like, no, it's mm. not. It's essential. So I, I'm just, yeah, you know, and buying weed is something you do where it's legal, not where it's illegal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cut that if you want. <laughs> I'm going to be in agreement with you there. Uh, so yeah, like, like I was jumping into, you think of a heat shield tile or something being invented mm -hmm. or a new kind of styrofoam filler or something. And that, yeah. that may be invented for the program, but it spills down and ends up in all kinds of products in the civilian economy. You know, suddenly it yeah. makes your house uh, more heat efficient or something. So what do well, you think? It, it's, it's like all the, the, uh, I was going to say uh, a lot of NASA research in the seventies was into uh, um, what is it? Teleoperation. Mm. So remote control of machines that basic research now feeds into telemedicine and mm. remote surgery and all those sort of uh, enhancements. And none of that would have happened without that 1970s exploration of, of the concept. Right. So 40 years later, or, or we have these cool robots going around hospitals. And the average person on the street might never encounter that, but it is improving our total quality of life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, so, yeah, electronics and semiconductors and all the rest wouldn't have got the leg up that they did without the 60s space program. Mm -hmm. um, they, they would have remained on the fringes, massive integration and all those things that gave us Moore's law and, you know, all the eye devices and clever gadgets we have now all came out of that basic research. Right. Right. And, and that's what, that's what you're seeing the potential for that, that synergy of doing new things in new ways will mean new industries and new opportunities. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, yeah, that is super exciting to me. Where do you think we ought to be concentrating as our first objective in, um, private industry space development. Okay. Uh, you mentioned space labs and look, they've been talked about, talked about since the seventies. Um, and it, it's not a bad idea, but it's not, not the booster, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's not the initial Kickstarter. Um, recently Phil Metzger, uh, who's a uh, planetary material scientist, uh, formerly with NASA now with one of the universities in Florida, uh, has with a few colleagues put the, a good case for the commercial opportunity of mining the moon for water mm -hmm. to use for a propellant in low earth orbit to boost communication satellites to geosynchronous orbit. And by doing that, they think they can make money. And it's like, it's one of the first models of, yeah, this could really work, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, there will be new opportunities arise as industry expands. Mm -hmm. So what, what we really have to do then is create some sort of construction industry in, in Earth orbit. Well, yeah, not necessarily low Earth orbit. I mean, mm -hmm. it has pluses and minuses, but it is very deep down Earth's gravity well. Uh, if, if we want to source materials from further afield, 
the real place you want to park things in orbit is geosynchronous orbit and, and then further out hmm. uh, as m more activity moves towards near the moon or mm -hmm. places that are easy for asteroid um, payloads to come back from. So like uh, there are a whole bunch of halo orbits around the moon, which are actually very easy to get to from near earth asteroids. Um, so if you're shipping materials back from there, that's where you want your first port of call. Um, and then you can deliver it down to lower orbits or even back to earth. Um, but it doesn't have the, the fuel penalty of going uh, so mm -hmm. close to earth initially. Right. Yeah. And I hope that's something, a basic concept that I would love to get across to uh, our viewers and listeners is, is you got to think three dimensionally when it comes to space, right? Yeah, it's not a 2D exactly. or there are gravity wells and the expensive part of everything is getting it off of the Earth's surface is kicking it up into orbit. And so if you have to keep doing that, it makes things horrendously expensive. Whereas if you can get kick some stuff up into orbit or further out and then start bringing things in in that orbit that you were talking about to, to create more things, you're going to create that in, a, in an environment where you don't have to deal with that getting out of that gravity well it's going to make things much cheaper yeah exactly and the thing with gravity wells is they're not always a penalty uh there are two stable points that trail and lead the moon in its orbit the the lagrange l4 and l5 points um and and they're kind of potential wells of their own just recently they've managed to image interplanetary dust that is collected there. We don't know how much there is, but the, it, it had been theorized for 50 years. Hmm. But the fact that it, we've now seen it means that, well, once we start going there, we'll get an idea of what we can do with it, how much of it there really is. And that could be an opportunity too. So you don't know until you go look. Right. It, it, Somebody's like, got to take that initial risk though, right? <laughs> well, one, one would hope that, was NASA's role and up until about 1970 it was but since then they've seen just somewhat risk averse but I think that's more due to the, the fact that I'm getting a little message but anyway but yeah risk aversion seems to have become a dominant thing but I, I think that's due to just budgeted uncertainties and, and that whole political environment that they operate out of. Mm. So that's why I think there's a much bigger role for commercial enterprise to take the risks. Um, but generally they don't take risks until they see a good chance of return. Right. Which is where you begin to get into that with this uh, water on the moon concept right that we could go out there yeah get water turn that into fuel and then go get other stuff minerals and whatnot from near-earth asteroids and start making yeah, exactly things, right and the idea there uh there's a great book called asteroid mining 101 uh that, okay. that is very helpful for the regular joe to understand what the heck we're talking about here because this is not about going and getting platinum from some asteroid and bringing it back to earth that that is not what anybody really wants to do they want to get that platinum and turn it into something in orbit at that that cheaper cost well uh, part of it is like okay for an example for on-orbit construction uh 
a lot of communications companies would tell you that their bandwidth and the amount of channels they can handle would expand immensely hmm. if they could build big enough antenna arrays in orbit. Uh, I mean, SpaceX are going to put thousands of satellites up, so that's mm -hmm. that's one solution. But for systems based in geosynchronous orbit, you know, the arrays get really big. Now, packing that into a rocket and then boosting it up there is really challenging. Right. But if instead you can get the materials in space and make it on site, like a lot of companies are now proposing, then you know, size is no longer an issue. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and antenna arrays are one of the big um, things that, that are areas of interest in, in space construction coming up. That's one of the, the key areas that I keep seeing. Yeah. In, in just for our, our listeners and viewers uh, to have a, a more complete picture here. In 2014, 2015, uh, I knew I wanted to get into this field and uh, I, I, I got the guts to ask one of the vice presidents of business development of one of the two major asteroid mining firms for an interview. And I, I kind of tracked him down through one of his blogs and messaged him and he said yes and I got to talk to him for an hour. Uh, and that was when I first heard, oh, no, we're not interested in getting grants from NASA. We want to develop our own private industry endeavors, right? That, and that was a yeah. big eye-opener to me. I was like, oh, oh, really? <laughs> right? So for the last three years, I've been, you know, for a while there, I fought the I'm not a scientist thing. That really held me back. It was a limiting belief. And finally, I got past it. And, and now I'm, I'm like, okay, I can do whatever the heck I want. I can hire people to help me out with, yeah. the, with the science and the math. Um, but the guts to do the idea and to form the idea and keep it together, that's what is really uh, needed out there. So, yeah. Um, and, and so against that, you've got this risk-averse thing with the public programs. Um, yeah. So it really is necessary for these companies like SpaceX to go out there and, uh, and that, that, yeah, there's um, planetary resources and DSI are the two main uh, asteroid mining companies. And I can remember 20 years ago or more now, uh, closer to 25, <laughs> I was in high school and uh, I mentioned I wanted to run an asteroid mining company to uh, a friend and he kind of laughed at me. I was like 16 years old and he said, that's fantasy. And I'll never forget that. He's forgotten. <laughs> I'm still yeah. friends with him today. He's forgotten. I haven't forgotten. And the thing has come around to being a reality now. There are companies out there doing this right and I would love to step in and do that so th this has become a real thing so Adam what do you think we should be concentrating on uh, in terms of like say re reusable launch vehicles or uh, one of my big ideas that I really want to get into is uh, replaceable parts vehicles right so uh, you know they're they're assembled maybe um, by themselves in orbit and, uh, okay. and if something breaks you, they just pop off a piece and put it on and then go back out and kind of pull in some more asteroid stuff to process and send out what else uh, what other things um, do you think are a priority well um, see it's kind of too early to tell hmm. like we we know there are applications that are earth focused the question is what's going to be out there focused, you know, as 
the in-space economy grows, there will be application opportunities that appear there as well. Hmm. And it's, it's hard to tell. Like um, my favorite object in the solar system, aside from Earth, is Saturn's moon, Titan, um, because it has such a massive atmosphere and you know, huge supply of hydrocarbons on, on the surface. Um, plus it also has like energetic compounds. Like it, it has acetylene, which, you know, we all used to on earth, Mm -hmm. uh, in welding gear and that sort of stuff. But on Titan, it forms a crystal and there's possibly deposits of the stuff all over the surface. And so I kind of speculate, well, once there's stuff happening around the moon and so forth, might we want to source hydrocarbons from further afield? You know, it, the, a lot of space advocates talk about putting, you know, building settlements in space and those will need nitrogen in their atmospheres and possibly the easiest source of nitrogen out this side of Saturn's orbit is Titan. Uh, as strange as that sounds. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, for, for our listeners who don't maybe know too much about the use of these raw materials in our daily lives, I'd like to bring up the example of nickel in cell phones, which is a a rare earth element. And there are mining operations going on in Africa that have been, you know, they've been going on for a long time, 20 plus years. I mean, I remember this being talked about when I was in college in the nineties. Um, so they'll go and I don't know, kind of sift these things out uh, of rivers and that and, and come up with the nickel and there's warlord bands and people are not taken care of very well, right? So there's an awful lot of trouble being gone through to get this stuff on earth. And I think mm. it might be socially <laughs> a lot easier to just go out there and get it from an unsuspecting asteroid that isn't going to fight back or you know, may, maybe it leads to some sort of solar system war after a while over resources. I'm not sure. Well, but. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah. um, it, may, it makes for good TV. Yeah. I mean, witness the expanse. But uh, a colleague of mine, Andreas Hein, uh, recently studied the environmental impact of asteroid mining, and he hmm. found that it actually works out much better for Earth uh, mm-hmm. in so many different ways to if we can resource it in space than on earth because what we often don't realize is that to get at those minerals an awful amount of other things have to be moved out of the way mm-hmm. and you have to refine through a lot of ore right uh, before you actually get the final end product um, whereas in for a lot of things in space it's quite possible that it will be there in relatively easily accessed veins of material within the asteroids themselves. Right. Yeah. Asteroids are not always solid rock. They're, they're sometimes just composites of stuff, dirt and dust and clumps and things like that, that just happen to be held together for, for a while. So what do you think? Well, well, that- two asteroids are being visited at the moment. Mm-hmm. So there are two asteroids that have orbiters around them at the moment that are active, um, Bennu and, and um, oh, I'm not sure what the Japanese ones thing. Um, and both those asteroids look similar and they're essentially just big rubble piles. Um, they have a very distinctive shape because their material is so loose 
that as it spins around, it just kind of forms this, you know, spinning top. Yeah. And that's due to it all being loose material. Right. So, yeah. So the, yeah um, we could send a vehicle over there. Asteroids will be surprising. Hmm. So you're, yeah. you're looking for more surprises. I know that one of the goals of, uh, of one of those two big asteroid mining companies is to get a ton of small telescopes up there to start looking. Uh, they've identified a lot of uh, hundreds of, of near-Earth uh, asteroids, but um, they don't have a great idea of what's right. in them yet. And they've got to do this uh, light analysis, right, to figure out, because you can figure out what, what's in uh, the chemical composition. Uh, with by the light the spectrum yeah. analysis, so that's that's the next goal for them, and they're starting to do this. What do you think that life is going to? Oh, okay, I'm going to stop because you want to comment. So, go ahead. Oh, I was I was going to say you can in theory look inside asteroids using radio waves um, if you get close enough, because mm. there's a, a natural source of 10 meter radio waves that's incredibly strong within our own solar system and that's the planet Jupiter. Mm. So if, if you arrange a, a set of mini satellites around an asteroid that you want to look inside as they rotate around and Jupiter comes in behind the asteroid, it's essentially like a, a giant radio X-ray mm. and they can look into the asteroid. So that's another possibility. Okay. Um, there's a lot of cool technology coming available. So that then the, the delivery system becomes the important part there, I think. How do you get these Correct. telescopes out to the spot that you want? I think we can orbit them around the thing once they get there, but how do you do it cheaply and effectively? Uh, yeah. and, then, and then taking into mind the orbits of these things, I mean, there's a lot of math involved here. Uh, and I believe that there's great opportunity in simulation and remote control uh, developments because you're not I doubt you're gonna send up a guy in an asteroid mining vehicle that flies up to an asteroid I would I would personally yeah. much rather send a drone or a fleet of drones that just go rrr, 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 you know and if they if and they kind of process the stuff through the front end and poop it out back to some collective center um, where it gets processed. That's sort of the, the idea um, that I have in mind. And then if stuff breaks, that's, then... that's not a bad idea. It's, it's, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure I've seen many <laughs> yeah. different versions. Um, it really depends on the specific resource that you're targeting um, and the material properties of the asteroid. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some are essentially solid iron nickel alloy and some are solid rock. Others are, essentially asphalt layered over a core of highly porous, probably frozen water and other bits and pieces thrown in. Um, and each one will have challenges and opportunities. Right. So our, our stage that we're at right now, would you say that it's, we've kind of got a lot of these mapped out, but we don't really know what is there, what is actually there. And we need to find yeah. out so we can prioritize, okay, what makes sense to visit first? Where are we going to get the biggest uh, return yeah. on our investment? We're going to visit first. I know, I think it's DSI has bought uh, a company that runs a 3D simulation of all the asteroids in near Earth orbit. And you can go and watch this thing okay. and it's fun to, you can stick a date on it and see what it looked like then or will look like. Um, it's just in black and white 3D animation, but, uh, but it's, it's pretty cool. Okay. So figure out what's going on. Um, so say we get doing this and it's 200 years from now. 
what does our society look like in your opinion? Uh, I think it'll, for starters, it'll be immensely richer if we take the opportunity. Otherwise we'll impoverish ourselves by restricting our, our field of activity to planet earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're butting up against the limits of industrial activity on earth. Whereas in space, there's a hell of a lot more room. Um, and yeah, I mean, the challenges are different, but there's a lot more energy. I mean, solar energy is 24 hours a day in space, whereas yeah, earth has night and atmosphere and dust and cloud and so many limitations on solar. Um, yeah. So I think if we take the opportunity, uh, just how far afield humans will go, I don't know. Like every off world environment is is harsher than anything on earth. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, yeah, there'll be people that want the space and freedom to try something else out there. Um, one fun idea for a, a possible space habitat, which, I hadn't seen discussed too much was inside a lot of larger asteroids. They're quite possibly mm. huge voids and cave systems. Well, not like terrestrial caves, but more like bits of asteroid leaving spaces between them. And that kind of internal volume is, is immense. Um, so, you know, you might want to burrow down so you can right. have, a radiation protected region mm-hmm. away from cosmic rays and solar storms. Right. Yeah. Um, people need to realize you can't just go up there and build something. You'll get irradiated. <laughs> there needs to be very yeah. thick, very thick protection between you and the sun, uh, which our atmosphere gives us. Thank you. <laughs> very thin little thing. And, uh, and we exist under that. So yeah, like I can imagine building a, a very large ring habitat around the earth at a higher uh, orbit, but then there's the yeah. question of how do you protect uh, from from this radiation? So, uh, yeah, and exactly. degree and whatnot. I, I do have one question, which, which I, I have personally sunk a lot of thought into, and I'm interested in your opinion of it. Um, the Kessler okay. syndrome. Okay, so the Kessler yeah. syndrome is uh, it's I think it's been around since the 70s. You got this junk all up yeah. there, an ever-increasing yeah, bunk of junk, like up there in orbit, right? With satellites spinning out of control and, and going into a decaying orbit and filling up space in our sky. And as you're trying to launch things, the risk of hitting something increases. And also, uh, the more space focused we get, the more stuff is going to be put up there, right? And uh, I can imagine the need for a traffic control system. And there's a couple of companies, one of which I recently saw featured to my chagrin on CNN. Somebody already thought of it and has gone into it. Maybe I'll buy it someday. I don't know. Um, Of how to traffic manage all this stuff, right? Keep track. Um, Now, the the Kessler syndrome is the worry that there will be so much junk that uh, one impact will set off a chain reaction of explosions and create this massive dust cloud around earth. And it's not ridiculous. Like this sounds like science fiction, but it's not. Uh, And stop us from being able to launch anything for decades because there's so much junk out there. Now I have thought, well, what if you had large batteries of energy to power lasers out there that could focus in and zap something and you could AI this thing, right? Run it through artificial intelligence to figure out, 
where the potential impacts are going to be. And, and this system would laser something um, before the, that, that first critical impact started. How realistic is yeah. that, do you think? Or is it just impossible to get that amount of energy stored up or moved around to a single thing? I, I don't think it's impossible. Um, it, it's been seriously discussed. Hmm. I think it runs into political problems, um, which yes. should be obvious <laughs> to anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, most uh, suggestions for uh, clearing out space junk um, generally involve uh, systems that can attach to dead upper stages and uh, deorbit them in you know a couple of months okay. uh, and a whole fleet of cubesats that can then latch onto things and then they spin out electrodynamic tethers that then blow them of orbit because um uh, my net connection says it's unstable, but anyway. Yeah, we had a bad moment there, but if you want to repeat what you said, I got the general gist of it, but go ahead again. A uh, bunch okay. of CubeSats that fly in, grab the thing and, and drag it down to a lower orbit so it can decay there yeah. in the atmosphere. Okay. Yeah, and most of the junk problem is within that few hundred kilometers of Earth's surface. Geosynchronous uh, mm. orbit um, has the problem that there are a lot of uh, defunct satellites there taking up valuable space um most operators now will park their um retired satellites in what's called the graveyard or orbit which is away from like a few hundred kilometers higher um which uh, when you think about it that's a potential business opportunity if their mm -hmm. power systems and so forth are still operable um if you gang them together you could get mm. quite a s significant power supply on in space um, but yeah, I think really the best thing is to avoid, uh, energy weapons that point towards the ground. <laughs> um, uh, it's not that they're going to be a risk to anything on the surface, but it, it does, you know, like once you have that capacity, it becomes far too easy for it to become something you want to use against, mm -hmm. you know, whoever. Right. Um, yeah, you have this James Bond villain syndrome. <laughs> yeah, and and look, um, from Goldeneye and uh, Diamonds Are Forever. I mean, but both of those were just ridiculous. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's impossible to have a huge amount of power in space without it being obvious. Mm -hmm. you know, huge right. solar collectors or massive radiators for nuclear reactors will stand out. Um, you know, any tracking agency would be able to spot them. Right. Um, yeah, and I, I've looked at this a lot too about space warfare. It is impossible to, uh, there's no stealth in space. There's always yeah. going to be a heat signature or something. There, there might be disguise in that you try exactly. and make something look like something else until, ha da, you know, actually it's missiles, you know, <laughs> they're heading to you. So, well, well, that was, that was always the, the case against anti-ballistic missile systems was that it was far too easy to hoax ground sensors. Um, mm. You know, you could pop up radar reflective balloons. You can throw chaff. Uh, there's so many different ways of, of misleading your enemy. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So while stealth is impossible, it is 
very easy to confuse. Right. Um, yeah. So, but you know, I'm, I'm sure that the space force, uh, will look at these issues. Um, <laughs> yeah. and I would hope that, uh, a sensible suggestion will be that, that it, it's their mission to, you know, help solve the space junk issue. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, that but, is a bigger issue and more serious than I think the average Joe on the street realizes. Yeah, it's what do they call it? It's an exponent, exponential collisional cascade, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, one satellite rams into another, and it throws off three pieces, the ram into three more, then so forth and so on, and very quickly they've all been hit by a chunk. Right. Yeah, they're going um, at 18,000 miles an hour or something like that. You know, it's just yeah. fast. And if you've ever seen a picture of a, they'll show you like a chunk of aluminum that's 10 feet by 10 feet hit by something tiny. And this huge bowl, half bowl is, is smashed into it, right? It doesn't take a lot of mass to create a, a great uh, impact crater when, you, mm. when you've got a lot of velocity going. And that, that is how... Um, meteorites destroy <laughs> massive forests and things like that so all right well let's yeah. kind of wind it up there adam um i guess my final okay. question will be i mean i'll have you on again i think this has been great yeah, no doubt. Uh, what should people be looking for in the years to come in the next few years do you think in uh, in spaces and privatization of space programs well okay um I know more than a few people have predicted this one, but you'll see the space launch system kind of put out the pasture. Hmm. Uh, SpaceX or a competitor will be the heavy lift provider, at least initially until other people join the field. Um, And there will be a focus on reusing first stages. Uh, You know, SpaceX have done it first, but other companies are ramping up to do the same. And, well, first stages are generally the easiest and why we didn't do it until now is due to pure his- historical uh, accident in that mm. first stages are an awful lot like ICBMs. Um, and thus all the effort went into, you know, that kind of technology crossover between missiles and launches. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think that will then drop the price. So it might get interesting for smaller throwaway launch companies. Uh, Will they be able to keep up in that market? But the the explosion in opportunity for CubeSats um, and, you know, smaller things are becoming more able to do more. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, if done right, that'll do wonders if done wrong it'll be an awful lot of space junk but most of them are (laughs) creating an opportunity Uh, to create more cubesats to run and grab them and pull them down yeah could you i mean quickly define a cubesat for the for the general audience who isn't who may have heard the term but don't really know what it is well essentially the name gives it away it's Mm -hmm. a cubic satellite about four inches by four inches 10 centimeters for those of you in metric and uh, each bit weighs about two pounds. Um, and generally there up to 10 of those subunits uh, counts as a cube satellite. Um, and 
they've got power systems, propulsion systems, communication systems, lots of pop out antenna for if they want to talk to the ground. Um, and yeah. And as a result, they're immensely cheaper than regular satellites to make. And just about anyone can design them. Uh, there are high school students and, you know, uh, undergraduate students who have designed them and some of them have even had them launched. So, you know, it's, it's, it opens up the opportunity for anyone with a, a technological bent to uh, get involved. Um, right. I think that's very cool because one of the big challenges uh, that I've seen over the years is getting the public consciousness to get on board with, with exactly. space exploration, right? They'll have fits and spurts of it. But, uh, you know, I would prefer that it was in, embedded in there. I was like, a, you know, like yeah. living green, right? You know, this is something we really need to be doing. Yeah, and there's no reason why not. Um, but, yeah, of course, there's a certain amount of government bureaucracy and regulation and all the rest. And different administrators have tried over time to make it easier. Um, and certainly things have improved over time legislatively, but it's still a challenge. As usual, the p politicians are always the ones catching up to technology and not the other way around. Right. All right. Well, thanks for being here, Adam. My guest today has been Adam Crowell, blogger at crowlspace.com. I highly recommend you go there and check it out. And I think we'll both agree that uh, the layman should also go to Isaac Arthur's uh, YouTube channel and pick yeah, up absolutely. his amazing series of, uh, I think he puts them out every week. Uh, of, uh, of very intelligent space topics and he, it's it's almost like a podcast but it's even more entertaining than that yeah yeah isaac does it so well um yeah big fan uh, okay thanks very awesome. much jason thank you